0: Scripture reading for tonight is from Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. And made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade. Till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So would you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for the gift of um, the Bible. Thank you for these uh, stories that you inspired and then ruled over that they might be preserved and we could have them today and learn from them. You uh, remind us that our hearts, if they're soft, you can cause a great harvest in them, soil that that will bear lots of fruit. And we pray that would be the case with every heart here. In Christ's name, amen. Anybody gone to see Amadeus? Okay, a couple people. It's at the Folger Theater. Um, One of our family members went to see it, and it's been getting great reviews. I'm not getting any sort of stipend from the Folger to say that. Uh, But it is uh, one of my favorite films. And if you know the film, it's a fictional portrayal. Scholars are going to be quick to say that. Uh, some artistic license there it 's a fictional portrayal of the relationship between Mozart, the great composer, and Salieri. Uh, Salieri is in awe of mozart 's gift, and he is appalled by mozart 's morality. In fact, the more he witnesses his morality, the more his heart rages that God would give a gift. To someone this immoral. And he finally attempts suicide because he would rather die than see that sort of grace or gift given to someone like Mozart, someone so immoral. Well, that uh, narrative happened a long time ago with Jonah. Jonah is disgusted with God. He's disgusted with God's plan to be gracious to an immoral people, the Assyrians. That God would accept the repentance of international outlaws. Twice, the Lord compassionately questions Jonah. He says, do you well to be angry? And Jonah says, yeah! Yeah! I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. You know, throughout the story, Jonah is on the verge of a meltdown. Uh, You notice this word that's repeated, exceedingly. You know, he's a person with big emotional swings at this point, exceedingly glad for the plant, exceedingly mad and sad about the mercy God would show to the Ninevites. And uh, that happens... When your vision of the world is being dismantled, of what you want see to be good and right, Jonah's political vision, his cultural ethnic vision, his moral vision is being undone by God. It was the same for the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the Pharisees. As Jesus came in and began to just chip it away at the foundation under the world they had built based on their traditions and their hierarchy, they got angry. Jonah's lost it. And by lost it, I mean his compassion. You see, when your world, your vision of your world is being undone that is when you are most prone to lose your compassion it may be your political vision you know you you believe uh, ardently in certain values and you've labored for them and they've been turned over and there's a temptation to exchange compassion for disdain and cynicism it may be your cultural vision when dominant cultures begin to lose power The temptation is for them to exchange compassion for self-protection. In a similar way, when a minority culture sees that power shifting, it's a temptation for them to say, good riddance. Glad you're going. Or it may be your moral vision. You look out at the culture and you see things shifting morally. It alarms you. It concerns you. And there's a temptation to exchange compassion for judgmentalism. I think an example of this happened in the 80s in the evangelical church's response to the AIDS epidemic. What they um, were frustrated with morally caused a certain absence of compassion. But there's something fueling underneath that, and I, I speak autobiographically from my own heart. And that is, I've, I've detected in those moments for me, there's an attitude, maybe you can understand it, it sort of goes like this, if I perceive you have broken my rules, I then have the right to withhold my compassion from you, Righteously. I recently was hearing a report about the refugee crisis on the border of Mexico. And um, you know, five porta-potties for 2,500 people, unsanitary conditions, uh, cartels, um, oppressing people. There's a nurse there, an American nurse volunteer who has worked in many refugee centers around the world. Over several years, and she said, In my opinion, these are the worst conditions I've ever seen. Uh, It was a difficult report to hear. And in that uh, absence of compassion, there's a couple different narratives I've heard, uh, one primarily in America, and it would be uh, for those that question the legitimacy of those seeking asylum. And by the way, If you don't know well enough here, I'm not making a hidden political statement, okay, about what you ought to support. What I'm saying is, here's the narrative. Because I question the legitimacy of you seeking asylum, I therefore have the right to withhold compassion. And then on the side of the Mexican government, you hear, because basically uh, we've built some shelters that you ought to go to, Uh, we don't have any obligation to do anything in this area, Now, thank God for thousands of volunteers that cross the border every day with food and clothes and medicine. What's the point? Jonah views the Assyrians as at fault. And because they are at fault, he is not obligated to show compassion to them. And this is a false principle that can easily work its way into our mind. And there's lots of different issues that go with that. But this idea that if I perceive that you are at fault in any way, it it permits me to say you will not receive compassion from me. And the lesson God is showing here is actually the opposite. God is giving us a lesson on compassion in this final chapter. And uh, let's look at the basis of it. Uh, The basis of this compassion are two things. His compassion is a creator and his compassion is a redeemer. First of all, creator. I don't know if you've heard of the ABC dog programs, but it's where they take hard-to-adopt dogs and they take them into prisons and prisoners that qualify then can train them. And uh, I was reading an article about this, and one of the people that oversees the program said this. Many of the inmates come from broken families and have never experienced unconditional love until they come in contact with a pup whose survival depends on them. In addition, because the dogs often come from broken, storied backgrounds, the inmates identify with them. They see themselves in the dog. God wants Jonah to see the Ninevites in the plant. That's why he gives them this plant. Though the Assyrians uh, have been shown mercy, our text tells us that Jonah is still hopeful that God will judge them. You know, the the initial message was 40 days judgment. And so he thinks, well, maybe God has changed his mind. So he he does a tailgate uh, outside of the city sets himself up and and hopes that things are going to turn his way and he's going to see some fireworks. Well, it's hot, no surprise. And so the Lord appoints, just like he appointed a fish to deliver Jonah, he appoints a plant to grow up and shade him. Scholars assume that it's a castor oil plant that can grow really fast and has really big leaves. Have you ever felt the shade of a tree as compassion, right? On a really hot day, Man, I'm so glad for this. And so uh, as he's enjoying this compassion, the hope is that Jonah will begin to soften and self-reflect and maybe look at the city and go, well, maybe, maybe they deserve a little compassion. That doesn't happen. And so God takes another tactic. He sends a scorching wind and a worm, and away goes the shade. And under heat exhaustion, Jonah prays, kill me. I'd rather die. Kill me. And here the Lord speaks to Jonah, and he says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't create it, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left? That's not God taking a shot at their intellect. That's talking about moral ignorance. Don't know the right from their left. And also, he says, much cattle. Meaning, if I can't get you to be compassionate about the people, maybe I can get you compassionate about the cattle. (laughs) Right? God says, you didn't make it. You didn't care for it. You didn't sustain it. But I do humanity. I am the creator of humanity. He's trying to teach Jonah that he's a compassionate creator, that he is the one that makes the provision. And this is something throughout Scripture God does to try to communicate to you and I his heart of compassion. Psalm 104 says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. When you are watching the grass grow, when you are gardening, when you are cooking, when you are bringing out the food, when you are raising the glass on Thanksgiving, do you see the compassion of God for you? Do you see in those things the heart of God? His compassionate work. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father. So this is a sign of adoption of legitimate sons and daughters. For he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's compassion is... Is indiscriminate it made me think of a song that Bob Baldwin introduced me to. Maybe some of you know it. It's a song by Foy Vance called "Indiscriminate Act of Kindness." Anybody ever heard of that song? <laughs> Thanks, Bob and Gene, for raising your hands. Well, you should. You should. Um, it tells the story of a woman, an addict, who comes in out of the cold and wet into some sort of hotel or, I don't, you know, I don't know, inn. And she doesn't have money for a room, and she says, hey, maybe I can pay you in kind. And he responds and says, no, that won't be necessary, but wh- what I'll let you do is I'll, you can share my room. And then the song begins to unfold these acts of kindnesses, bringing her a warm towel holding her hand as she's trying, dealing with withdrawal, sleeping on the settee, And as this song just, you know, moves so compassionately, um, she asks, why, why, why would you do this? And he says, I was always told if you see someone defiled, you should look them in the eye and smile. Take their hand or better, still take them home. I was just doing what was right. Nobody that knows love could leave you out there on such a night. If you can help someone, bear this in mind and consider it an indiscriminate act of kindness. This is God. Indiscriminate acts of compassion every day. All throughout Jesus' ministry... Symbolize this. This earlier this year we we looked at the humanity of Jesus, and in that we looked at part of the emotional life of Jesus, and we came to understand that the primary emotion that is ascribed to Jesus in his ministry was what? Compassion. There's a sign where uh, Jesus walks into a village and just for a moment he sees a widow. Uh, carrying her only son who had died. And it says just the sight of it made it well up, made him well up in compassion. You know, I, I so often wish I could be one of those people. You know, p- people that, it's a sign of godliness I see in folks. I, it doesn't always have to be. Maybe you're just emotional, okay? I don't want to say if you're emotional, it's always godliness. But there is a version of this that is very godly. And that is when they hear something, it's just like immediately they just well up. You know, it's just a soft heart. Compassion is just there at the reach. In Psalm 145, we find a famous famous word said to Israel, and he indirectly raises a question. I mean, a sticky question, a hard question. And that is, how can God be just and compassionate at the same time? There's no way for you to walk through this life and suffer and not ask that question. It's a question that runs throughout the scripture. I love the fact... That the Bible is not afraid to bring it over and over. This, this idea that somehow Christianity, and, and there are versions like this and churches like this, where questions and doubts and raising one's fist is suppressed and you can't do that. They, anything but that in the scriptures. In fact, they have an emotional liberty that I see in very few modern people. Bringing their raw hearts to God, as you see with Jonah. I heard some of you laughing as it was read. I'm sure your laughing was incredulity, right? Like, man, how does this guy get off? If you get to heaven, you can ask him. Um, But as we try to reconcile these things, just God, you know, in our minds, like one thing is we kind of think, well, maybe God just has different parts to him. But that theologically isn't quite correct. You know, God is a, as the Belgic confession would say, he's a simple being. We, we sang, or rather we heard read, we heard actually from the words of Jonah, the words that came out of the Lord's mouth when he appeared before Moses. This is like one of the heights, one of the epic moments where God reveals himself. And Moses just sees the, the, the afterglow of God, the backside, which means there's still a mystery to what he saw. But what he heard was, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. But he didn't just hear that. He heard, but by no means will Clear the guilty. You find both things in God, both his compassion and forgiveness and his holiness and his justice. He is one person. Attributes are actually equal to identity. This is who God is. He's not divided in parts. Or maybe as modern folks, we try to reconcile and go, well, maybe the Assyrians weren't that bad they weren't that bad and they really deserved a little bit of grace well the king himself said they were that bad and the historians will tell you they were that bad they were brutal if you had been on the other end of their assaults and their murder and their torture you wouldn't say well maybe they're deserving a little, little bit of grace Or maybe, in our minds, we think, well, God was waiting to see and they would get better and better toward the end. But he didn't wait and then give grace. This is the curious thing about God. He meets you just when you are weak and powerless, worst in your sin. Christ died for you. Salvation was accomplished for you. He doesn't have a wait and see and then we will give grace. So how do we understand this? How does God maintain these things? Well, I will tell you, I think this is unique to the Christian faith, because the way it's answered is in a person, and it had to be this person. It had to be the Son of God who would come and take on flesh. It had to be the God-man. I have printed in your bulletin here. In fact, I forgot mine. Uh, thank you, Connor you got your notes on that. I don't know if I want to see this. This guy is cray- way off, Glenn. I just, oh, man. It's what you ask for. Don't ever Google yourself, you know. Uh, anyway, in the bulletin here, uh, another ancient catechism, you know, gets to this idea. So they pose this question, how can you and I escape justice... But get God's favorite. Listen, if you are someone, whether you're a Christian or not, I know that you care about justice. So you've got to wrestle with this question. If you believe in justice and you know your own life falls short of what it should be, you've got to ask yourself, how in the world can I hope if there's a God, he's going to be gracious to me and he's also going to be just? Can't get away from the question. And so these old ancient theologians, you know, it's really good to go to them, not ancient, but 500 years ago. They asked the question, well, how can you escape? Because the claims of justice have to be paid in full, and we can't do it because we increase our debt every day. And God's not going to stick my guilt and punishment on you. That wouldn't be fair. And guess what? Even if he did, you couldn't bear it. So we're in a little bit of a problem here. And now I'll turn to your bulletin. We need a deliverer. We need a mediator. And he says, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for? One who is true and righteous human, yet more powerful than all creatures. One who's also God. So you have someone that, 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 that can stand in because they're truly human, but they've got to be more than human, because who's going to bear the judgment of the world? And, who's gonna, and, and they have to volunteer to do it. They can't be coerced. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous human? God's justice demands that human nature, which is sin, must pay for sin, but a sinful human could never pay for others. Why must the mediator also be true God? So that the mediator, by the power of his divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness in life. This is why God can be just and merciful. Because he comes in the person of himself and he absorbs the judgment, but he can absorb it. This is the only way we get out of the conundrum. And Israel, they didn't get to look ahead that far, right? We see more than they did, so there's more on us to wrestle with that question. But they did have a sacrificial system where God was regularly demonstrating to them, the only way you're ever going to be forgiven is if someone sacrifices themselves for you. But also they would have heard the heart of God, the heart of God in Hosea. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart recoils within me. That means he's turning his heart over, over and over. My compassion grows warm and tender for you. Or the book of Isaiah where he says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. My friends, the punchline of this book, the message of this book, to Jonah, to Israel, to those that are in the church, is this. If God would be so animated and inclined to show grace to wayward, rebellious enemies... How much more would he show grace to you? How much more will he show grace to the people that he promised? It was the same question that Jesus was raising in the parable of the two sons. You know, the wayward son, the sinner comes back, he's welcome. But the parable really centers on the son who's outside of the house. He won't come in. And the father, in a sense, is saying, son, if I would do this for someone who despised his birthright and rebelled against me, how much more can you expect me to throw a feast for you? Many times I've heard, and I, I get it, those of you that have grown up in the church and have sought to be faithful to the gospel you were taught, You know, when you hear someone that, you know, was a drug dealing, wayward, outward person come to faith and you hear of God's forgiveness, the temptation is to go, man, I I I wish that my story of grace was like that. And I want to say to you the message of Nineveh. God is saying to you, if you think that my grace is big for someone like that, how much more is it for you? That's the message. And it's a message then, a redeemer in his compassion, that then begins to change us. Let me close with this um, story that I read this week. Uh, You know, there were many people, as as you know, uh, this is the time in America where we recognized Native Americans. And... um, we understand that there is no shortage of culpability for people responsible in the displacement of Native Americans. And one of those people groups were Irish, descendants of Ireland. In fact, one of the fierce generals was Phil Sheraton. He has recorded the saying when his soldiers said, but what about the collateral damage with the women and children when we go in? And he basically just said... Hey, it's their fault for trying to fight back. He's actually the one that's credited with the phrase, the only good engine is a dead engine. Now, there's some question about whether he really said it. But he he, he was a guy that definitely was on the forefront, the aggressive side of displacement. One of the groups that was being displaced at that time was the Choctaw Nation, And it was actually through an Irish shoulder that they learned about the famine in Ireland. And uh, it led them to really an astounding act of compassion. They raised $170, which would have been several thousand in our day and age, and they sent it over to the famished Irish people. Uh, Recently, the prime minister of Ireland recognized this and said, Back in the 19th century when the Irish people were oppressed, abused, neglected, and degraded by our colonial master at our lowest, your spirit of generosity was at its highest. You showed compassion to a starving people who were dying in their hundreds of thousands. So, if the creation, if the image of God, if God's common grace can provoke that sort of act of compassion. How much more can those that know his redeeming grace that he had given his son, what sort of acts of compassion would that create? That's really what we're after, right? To understand the gospel in that way, that people are dumbfounded in this city by acts of compassion. There is a temptation right now, my friends and I think uh, many of us feel it, i feel it, as the culture more and more views the Christian faith as unhelpful and actually as a threat and as immoral, there is a temptation to circle the wagons and to live in fear and self-protection and withhold compassion. And God is calling us to do the exact opposite, to have the confidence of grace that moves up with radical acts of compassion just as he's demonstrated to Jonah all the way through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful book. Uh, We also thank you for Jonah. We've learned a lot at his expense. Um, We thank you for uh, the example of our own hearts he is. We pray, Lord, uh, that we would be awestruck by the compassion you show every day, but more so as we think about you as our Redeemer. And we pray our city would be the recipients of it, our co-workers, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in the family of God. In Christ's name, amen.